Action. Time travel. Monkeys attacking helicopters. Viruses from outer space. And Bruce Willis getting bathed. Sound crazy? Well, buckle in. We're talking about science fiction virus movies. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Real Talk, a movie podcast, where we want to be your go-to source for ratings and recommendations of past and present films. I am your host, Wes Jones, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Hey, this is Tommy, podcasting straight from Nashville, Tennessee. The Movie Buddy Conway, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky. You're listening to Episode 3. You're here because of the system. Sci-fi virus films. Enjoy the show. All right, episode three. How's everybody doing tonight? Anything new going on with you? Ah, uh, things are going good, Wes. Yeah, excited to get this started. Excited to talk about the science fiction genre. Uh, not too much, Wes. It's my favorite time of the year. It's perfect 70 degrees outside. Me and my son did a little camp out, hang out in the backyard tonight. And now I'm ready to do a little movie talk. Yeah. So are are you recording yeah. from inside your tent? No, I'm I'm not. I'm in the house. I carried him up here. Uh, well, okay. Well, I was wondering how you were doing a camp out tonight <laughs> while you're also recording a podcast. Gabe's got a good uh, podcast uh, setter set up outside his backyard. <laughs> The technology is amazing these days. Yeah, great Wi-Fi <laughs> in the backyard. <laughs> well, anyway, tonight we're going to be finishing off this trilogy of infectious disease episodes, and we're going to be talking sci-fi virus films. And we also have a special announcement for our next episode of the podcast. Episode four, we're going to be diving into 90s blockbusters, and it'll be over a couple of episodes. And the Real Talk crew, we're going to be taking you... Uh, through our top five films of each half decade. So we don't want to get into too much of that tonight, but I did want to at least announce that. So we'll get started. And first, tonight, we will do our first reel segment. And just to remind the listeners, during this segment, we'll comment on some of the latest news from the film industry. And do you guys have anything for this week? So, Wes, yeah, thanks. I do. So, I know last episode I talked about kind of theaters and Trolls 2 um, being released home video. But now I want to flip it, and I want to call out the theater industry and say that there's one film that's still standing right now, standing strong, that's ready to be released, and that is Christopher Nolan's new film, Tenet, where all the other films have continuously backed away and, and left their, um, you know, their date Tenet is still there. So I'm just wondering, is it going to stay at July 17th? What is y'all's prediction? Do you think it's going to actually open on that date? Or do you think it's going to move and and be pushed back? Well, I actually saw that uh, in Texas, I think this Friday or next Friday, they're going to start letting people go back to the movie theater. Hmm. That would be good. That would be good. You know, I read a really good article in Deadline Hollywood, which talked about what the theater's plans are and, and basically what the the concept, what they're going to do is, is basically a staggered type seating where the plan is you would have nobody in front of you 
and nobody directly beside you. And hmm. that way they hope and, – and the screens would only have 50% capacity each one. And they said they can do that and still be profitable because if you think about it, a lot of theaters, if you go into a screening, it's like half full anyway. If you think um, about it, when you go to the movies, that's what you want to happen anyway. I'm <laughs> that's, that's very nobody true. Nobody sitting next to me, nobody in front I of me. I love this idea. Up. Yeah. In fact, you just keep it running all the time. I want 50% capacity forever now. I hate going to the movie theater and it's like sold out or packed. I'm always trying to find like the off times. And I'll tell you what, a pet peeve of mine is when it's supposed to be an off time and then it's packed. And I'm like, what? what is going on here? Nobody's supposed to be here. Like they're doing what I'm doing. So I should have flipped it and went when it's supposed to be busy. Then it wouldn't have been busy. You, you know, know, I don't want to share your armrest. <laughs> I don't want you no. breathing on my neck. I don't want you clapping at scenes that don't even Wait make sense to clap. Gabe, that, that's me. You're talking about me when we go to the theaters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to come in a little bit different perspective. I think for me, it's always, it depends on the type of movie that you're going to see. Because sometimes the crowd can be fantastic. I saw Don't Breathe whenever it came out on opening night. We were in Paducah, Kentucky to watch the movie. And the crowd, they were amazing. It was so much fun being in the audience. And then whenever I watched A Quiet Place here in Bowling Green, that and I saw it on opening night, and that was a great crowd as well. So I think it just kind of depends. Most of the time I'm with you guys, but every now and then whenever you have that great uh, experience yeah. with the rest of the crowd, everybody's you know respectful, they're really into the movie. I, I think it kind of it, it ups the experience for me. You guys yes. remember when we went and watched Snakes on a Plane together? No, uh, I've locked that on my mind. The yes. crowd was amazing. <laughs> Clapping. It was awesome. Not a great movie, but it was an amazing crowd. Yeah, and I agree with you guys. A good fun. theater experience, if you can get it where people are like into it, that, that can be a lot of fun, too. I, I don't think it will open then. That's my answer to your question, though, T-Man. Okay, yeah. I was, yeah. was going to come back to that as well, and I'm going to say if people... Uh, go back to start going back to the theaters uh, this Friday. Let's say Texas gets going. I think other states will follow suit. And so if that happens, then I'll say tenants going to stay strong at July 17th and open. Yeah, I'm I'm so, I think it's going to open. I think Warner Brothers wants to be the first one with that big blockbuster. And I'll tell you what, what's bigger than a Christopher Nolan original, you know, $200 million blockbuster. Um, so I'm going to say it's going to open also. Ooh. These days, pretty much just a Marvel movie. That's about the only thing that's yeah that's opening he's, larger he, than his. He's really the biggest name, like when it comes to like opening a movie as a director. Like, yeah, I can agree with that for sure. So yeah, we'll see. I'm excited to see that. Some news that I saw this week that I thought was interesting. Uh, it's a little disheartening, but it's not surprising. Mission Impossible Seven and Eight that were supposed to be the last two films in the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible series that are being pushed back. And we'll have to wait until November of 2021 to get wow. Mission Impossible 7. So I saw that this week and uh, not good news, but it is news that I paid attention to because I'm these last couple of Mission Impossible films have been fantastic. Yeah, Rogue Nation and Fallout. I oh, absolutely love both of those movies. And so I was really excited for this for this next one. He made yeah. this proud a bit. Yeah, and for, I, I did. And from what I understand, so Christopher McQuarrie, the director, is back. 
and they're going to do this as like a two part like series finale, like you're saying with Tom Cruise. And um, I'm so excited to see kind of what they do with that. And uh, they've got to make them soon. I mean, Tom is going to be 60 years old. And how long can he be like jumping on buildings and flying helicopters and stuff? So <laughs> I think they've got to make these soon. Uh, so hopefully they will. Uh, I agree with you, Wes. Gabe, did you have anything tonight? Uh, no, nothing big, but uh, for all you Star Wars fans, uh, Rise of the Skywalker comes out on Disney streaming May the 4th. So may the 4th be with you guys. Oh, yeah. They pushed that up, I think, to Disney+. Plus. Disney+, Plus is doing that. They're smart. They did that with Frozen 2 also. And they did that with Onward. They, it was out in the theater, and then it immediately, they didn't, like, it was out where you had to pay $20 like Trolls for like yeah. two weeks, and then they immediately threw it on their streaming service. Oh. So it barely oh. had a theater release, but it, I think they were trying to attract more people to Disney+, Plus, give, give them more content. And just nobody was watching that. They're like, oh, well, no, this bombed. Let's just put it at Disney+. Plus. Let's just forget it never happened. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> I actually want to see it. I haven't seen it yet. But it, it was a huge bomb. Uh, but I'm, I'm with you, uh, Gabe. That's a really smart uh, do plan. Do you feel like Disney. we can judge it being a huge bomb based on the movie? Or do you think that – I don't think you can judge it because it didn't have enough time. COVID didn't well, give it it bombed like its first two weekends. Now I think it could have had a longer legs, but just from like the opening weekend, it, it was a bomb. And you know how it is now with Hollywood. If you don't have a good opening weekend, they like, they say it's a huge bomb. The media runs with it and you can't even have legs anymore. And uh, whatever like that first weekend narrative is, that's the narrative of the movie almost anymore. I feel like, I feel like the media and all the stuff was already coming out about COVID. I don't know if it had a ch- real chance. But, yeah, it, it definitely had a bad release date. I'm with you. But yeah, I'm I'm with you guys. I think I definitely want to see it. It does look good. Well, that'll conclude our first reel for this week. And we're going to move on. And we have another we have an, another new segment. And we're going to call this Real Talk Back. And that's where we get feedback on the movies from our listeners and from others that we interact with on social media. And we just want to recognize those people. Like we said during episode one, part of the joy of doing a podcast is what we were hoping would be a joy is just getting to interact with different people and talk movies. So um, episode two was the second part in our infectious disease trilogy, and we covered zombie virus films. And so we just reached out and interacted with a few people and asked them what their favorite scene was. And so I wanted to kind of read some of those responses. So 28 Days Later was one that we talked about. And Mike Matthews, you can find him at at Body Parts, and it's with two Ds. And he said the opening scenes where Jim is walking around a deserted London are pretty amazing. Then we had at Ramp Tramp Sam and... She said, city tunnel and the car problem scene. And I like how our uh, people are not spoiling it if other people are are yeah. come across the tweets. And so far, Wes, these are the same scenes that we talked about. Exactly. I mean, these are the ones I, that we that's really That's what I told them as well. I thought yeah. that was kind of cool. Laura Robinson, she said the flat tire scene. And she says the, the shadows of the infected people running down the tunnel are mm. so creepy. She said a close second is the chapel scene, and, and I don't know where Boyle found these creepy fish-eyed extras, but damn, 
Vince said she's going to be listening to our show. So, Laura, if you're listening, we appreciate the interaction. Next, we had Avion Howard. He said, I love when Jim wakes up to see he's alone in London, walks around and yells for signs of humanity, but then finds a few people along the way to help uh, take on the bloodthirsty zombies. And then finally, on 28 Days Later, we had at GMFTWA. And he said the shot where Jim was walking around Big Ben trying to find people, that's my favorite. The shots and the slowly growing audio really send the message of, of loneliness. And he says, I'm going to check you guys out. So that was all for 28 Days Later. And then for I Am Legend, we had Big Indian G-Y-A-S-I. He said, I'm a fan of the original Omega Man with Charlton Heston. I like the mannequin scene in both movies where he is Twitter padded by the lady mannequin. And I am legend. It's more of an emotional scene, of course, where he's pleading for her to speak with him. And that just made me laugh a little bit. He may not like what we had to say about the mannequin scene steering on. <laughs> right. I probably really liked what T-Man said. We needed more mannequins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was wanting more mannequins. I think we're in agreement there. Yeah. <laughs> and then I we had another view. Yes, he will definitely disagree with me. Uh, we had another comment from Ramp Tramps Sam, and she said um, it's not her favorite scene, but a memorable scene is whenever Will had to put his dog down. She said it ruined your life. Couldn't agree yeah. more. And those are all like I think those are all uh, great scenes, and so far we're all in agreement with everybody. I think everybody's yeah. what we're saying is kind of one of the same scenes that we really talked about. I it, ruined, that, it ruined my life, and it ruined that dog's life. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> really ruined that dog's life. It really did. Uh, literally, figuratively and literally, never worked again. <laughs> and then the final one, we had one comment on the crazies, and this is at Cam Holiday Five, and that's um, Holiday with two L's. Favorite scene is definitely the opening scene on the baseball field when Rory comes out with a shotgun and the sheriff has to pull the trigger before he kills him. That's it definitely so sets the tone for the movie, I believe. And again, so our, you know, our listeners and the people that we're interacting with on Twitter, they kind of had the same feeling about these movies that we did. And I, I thought that was really cool. Uh, one thing I did want to note on The Crazies is that we actually had Lynn Lowry, who is the star of the original film, and she makes a cameo in the remake. She liked one of our tweets talking about The Crazies this week, and I thought that was, nice. that was really cool yeah. as well. So episode three, and we're already famous, guys. That's awesome. I love it. I knew it would happen. I knew it happened. <laughs> I was thinking about episode one. I was really hoping episode one. But episode three is not bad. I think it's most of our talk about mannequins that did this. Yeah, we're going to really beef that mannequin talk up even more going forward. So I think <laughs> yeah, this don't is worry, guys. Plan. Tons more mannequins coming your way. All right, so to kind of lead into tonight's episode where we're talking about science fiction virus films, I, I wanted to take... Just as a second, if that's even possible, to briefly tackle the science fiction genre. As our podcast progresses, I think we'll be spending a lot more time within this genre. But from my perspective, there's two genres that really receive a lot of stigma. And they're horror films, which I think probably gets the most. And then I think science fiction gets its fair share as well. A common misconception is that science fiction is just the alien genre. And I'm not talking about the movie Alien. I'm just talking about aliens in general. 
And if we break it down a little, in, in fact, it covers a vast range of speculative concepts that are based in science. I guess if I'm trying to explain it, they're not currently accepted by reality's mainstream science. It's more speculative concepts. And so if you say it like that, I mean, science fiction really covers time travel, space travel, exploration of the mind and dreams and our, our consciousness, alien and alien planets, animal mutations, extrasensory perception, cyborgs, artificial intelligence. Let me and ask you this, course, Wes. Pandemic films. Let me ask you this, Wes. Would it cover Jurassic Park? Yes. Yeah, yeah that's speculative science. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Absolutely. I think everybody can say that they love science fiction movies. Yeah, so, I think I'm with you, Wes and Gabe. I think it has a bad rap, but um, yeah, continue on with what you're saying about all the different genres within it. Well, so the genre has really been around since the beginning of film. You know, in the in the silent era, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. It's like a, I don't know, nine, ten, twelve minutes, something like that. It's called a trip to the moon, which was on oh, Netflix yeah. for a little while. Definitely. And then that came out in 1902, and I, I, I'm thinking that's considered the first science fiction movie. But uh, again, it dates back that far. But Timon, you said it. I mean, the genre kind of got off to a bad start. There, you know, there were tons of low budget B movies for literally decades, and it kind of caused the public to dismiss it and not consider it serious cinema for a while. Yeah, I think you're right, Wes, and I think. It, it kind of goes in ways, you know, there, there are a lot of really great science fiction films, but I think kind of what you're uh, kind of talking about is it did have several decades there where they kind of did just regurgitate, you know, um, trash over and over again, especially like the fifties. They had all of those, you know, mutant creature films and, and nuclear war films and stuff that uh, were really cheaply made. And I think that kind of harmed its image. But if you really take it deep down in the filmography of science fiction, there are so many classic films that you can go through. And I think it, it really is an underrated genre in that way. In the 50s, it actually started producing much more of the ones that we, we think of today. But coming off the 30s and the 40s, I don't know that the films were you know, that widely praised and considered mm -hmm. great at the time. But you, you've got movies like The Thing from Another World, The Day right. the Earth Stood Still, you know, yep. those, those movies Classics. were in the 50s. Yeah, I think, yeah, to your point, I think 30s boys had kind of that dead period, but coming out of the 50s, um, while there was all those cheap films I just referenced, they did have those bona fide classics. One of them is The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, in in that is one of those films that kind of always captures my imagination with science fiction. And it kind of goes into what I think is the best part of science fiction, which is it takes um, a thematic, like a theme basically that is going on in the world and it puts it in a science fiction genre. So it makes you think about it in a different way. For instance, planet of the apes, you know, is it really, it's really about race and civil rights from the sixties, but it's done in a science fiction lens. And I think that's the great thing about science fiction is you can talk about stuff that you normally wouldn't be able to talk about through science fiction. No, I think that's a great point. And, and you said it just a second ago as well. Uh, in the 50s, there were fears of like atomic bombs and mutation became a popular subgenre. Mm -hmm. 
you know, during yeah. that time, like uh, the Blob, them, Godzilla, oh, yeah. the Fly, all that type those. of stuff. Yeah, they all came out in in the fifties. And that's because, like you're saying, it's all about the atomic age. And so if you look at those science fiction movies in that decade, they're all about that. The fear of nuclear warfare, the fear of, like you're saying, mutating because of the, the atomic bomb and all that stuff. And that's what I love about science fiction is it takes what's going on in present day and it flips it. And it really makes you think about it because you're watching an entertaining film. Another instance, and this is going into the 60s, is The Twilight Zone. You know, even though that's a television show, that's an iconic science fiction show. And Rod Serling always used what was going on in that day to talk about themes that you wouldn't be able to get away with in a normal normal television show. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you guys just bash creature features for a little bit, but you guys know I'm a creature feature geek. But um, I think you just hit on the cusp of what I wanted to talk about, T-Man. When you hit on Twilight Zone, though, that's a highly acclaimed show. That's one of an extremely yeah. highly acclaimed show. And I almost argue that sci-fi did a complete 180. You know, it had Twilight Zone. It has two, it probably has two of the best shows out right now. Uh, it has Battlestar Galactica. Well, it's not out right now. And then The Expanse is out right now. And if you haven't watched those, those are two of probably the best shows of the last 10 years, in my opinion. Um, and then the movies have flipped. Like you said, the movies were okay, but now the movies coming out like Alien is phenomenal. Star Wars, Matrix. I mean, you go on and on about how good the science fiction genre is now. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's a good lead in to the 60s. You know, what you were just kind of talking about, because in the 60s, that's when things really changed and they really became. the genre was taken much more serious. And I think people directors and stuff for those movies, you just mentioned Gabe star Wars aliens, you know, alien on and on. It it had to influence those directors in the two movies. T man, you already hit on one from 1968 planet of the apes, but the other one from 1968, that completely changed the sci-fi genre and really movies forever was Stanley Kubrick's 2001 of uh, Space Odyssey. Yeah, for sure. Wow, that's a great one. One of the great films ever. And and if you've never seen 2001 before, or if you have seen it, you know why that was such a genre changer and why um, these science fiction started be- becoming much more of, of a serious consideration because of that film. Yeah, and that film, I'll tell you what, even watching it today, I had the chance to go watch in the theaters last year when they re-released it, and it is amazing how well it holds up, how well the special effects hold up, how realistic they look, and just all the different things that Stanley Kubrick uh, you know, thought would happen in the future. A lot of it you know, kind of became true, the technology, different things like that. So that, I think you're right, Wes, that movie truly defined science fiction for a decade and on and really kind of changed movies in a lot of ways. Well, you were talking about uh, team and, you know, the main draw, I think from the genre, like you said, is it provides timely social commentary Mm -hmm. uh, on basically mankind or or, our humans relationship to science and technology. That's, that's what it does. And if you look at it by decade, it's, it's kind of cool. We talked about the 50s. Space exploration became popular. The space race really heated up in the 60s, and that kind of mm-hmm. kept that theme going. 
there was so much paranoia in the 70s, which some of that had to do, you know, fresh off wars and and things like that, um, you know, where humanity is under threat. Yeah, Watergate, the breakdown of trust in civil society. I think that's what you're talking about, Wes. 70s Mm -hmm. is that decade. You can just look at the invasion of the body snatchers. Yes. And that was actually one we forgot about in the 50s. That's another one that's all about the paranoia paranoia of the communist age, another thing we didn't even talk about. But I think you're right, Wes. The 70s just continued on with that theme, that trend. And then the late 70s and 80s started kind of bringing us – and again, I think – they have uh, 2001 to thank for this, but it really brought on the big box office sci-fi films. And Gabe, you said it, Star Wars, Alien, but then you had Blade Runner, The Terminator, E.T., Tron, Back to the Future, Close Encounters. You know, you had all those come out. And that really, I feel like, is when science fiction movies gained so much momentum and really became a phenomenon. Yeah, I think you're right, and that's really when the it, it changed in a lot of ways, and I think Gabe alluded to that, is where it became one of the most popular genres. If you don't, if you kind of hide that it's science fiction, if you kind of put it like E.T.'s, like a family drama, or Jurassic Park's like an adventure, if you can just hide it from the audience a little bit that it says, hey, it's not actually science fiction, it's something else, audiences love it. But if you say it's like hard science fiction, they'll be like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I think but about... Five, ten years ago, though, it that didn't even matter anymore because it used to be if it was science fiction, you were kind of a geek or, you know, but I, I think that's become cool even in now's generation. I think you're kind of not cool if you don't like Star Wars. So and I'm glad that happened because me being a huge science fiction fan always have been, you know, I'm glad that's out there. But, you know, I, so I don't even think that matters anymore. I think people like science fiction now. No, they do. They do. And you're right. The narrative is is changing. Um, that's why these movies do so well at the box office and things now. But I, I still feel like that stigma still exists on some of it where they're like, oh, science fiction. I don't really care anything about, about aliens. Well, let me yep. ask you this. Does Star and, Wars break that stigma? Because when I went to see Star Wars, I saw every type of person there. Every type of person. All the new Star Wars. It Packed does. Theater. But it doesn't because Star Wars is kind of beyond science fiction. It's kind of its own genre at this point. And like I said, I don't think you even, a lot of people even look at it as science fiction anymore. It's more of like an adventure, action, drama, family drama. There's a lot of different subgenres within Star Wars. So I think, but I think, Wes, Gabe, you are right. I think you're a lot right. My in a wife lot of that, went and watched Star Wars, loved it. On. But <laughs> Wes, I think another thing I want to mention about kind of what people think about the science fiction genre and i love science fiction so this is probably my favorite genre is that look at the academy awards which is kind of the establishment within hollywood science fiction films don't win academy awards science fiction films don't even get nominated for academy awards so there still is a stigma to the the genre even though it has grown exponentially over the years for sure why is that because it's not just as what Wes is saying, there's still a stigma attached to it, just like horror films do. Um, it is just not considered one of the uh, primary, like, respectable genres. And, the and respect- that's because of its its roots, right? That just gets passed down exactly. to generation, and it takes a while, generation to generation, and it takes a while to kind of change that and turn that. And it gave your point. I think we're in the middle of that change, and we've been in the middle of the change for well, like the past few couple- years. When when did Get Out get nominated? Uh, 2017. So that's a genre film. You're right that 
had great momentum within the academy, and I think you're starting to see a little bit of change within it. You got as, to see horror come out in the. That's yeah. what I was. But another thing to think about, like if you look back through the decades and say, okay, I always like to look back as like what should have won or what even should have been nominated for Academy Awards. Like, look at the Matrix. I mean, you could argue that should have won Best Picture that year. It's that great. Wasn't even nominated. Alien. You know that movie is iconic. It should be. Wasn't even nominated. So there's a lot of just still stigma attached to these films when they're released. But I think, Gabe, to your point, it is we are improving in that aspect of it. I think we need to improve more. I, you know, I'm not a horror fan, but I was happy to see Get Out nominated because it, it is a horror film nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen. I would have liked to seen A Quiet Place nominated. It was one of my favorite films that year. But like, so Star Wars too. I mean, I feel like that should have been Best Picture esque or in the it definitely in the conversation the year that it came out. Um, now, are you you're not talking about Episode Two, are you? No. <laughs> Okay, you said Star Wars too. I just make it sure. <laughs> no, I'll give this game. <laughs> oh my gosh, Wes, don't do that. Don't but even go there. I you're right. Say- but science fiction is still not there. Like, look at Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Great movie. Could have easily been up for Best Picture. I guarantee you, it's at least as good as those films nominated. Wasn't even you know in the running really, honestly. So I think there's a lot of work still to do within the Academy and just broader you know general yeah. you know movie going audiences to respect this genre within itself also but there's still a lot of great films being made like ex machina annihilation was just machina you know a couple years ago that movie's great so there's still a lot of really great science fiction films being made well that's the thing the thing that confuses me about that though shows are getting highly critically acclaimed like battlestar galactica and um the expanse but the movies just aren't there yet They don't win Emmys. They don't win Emmys. They don't, really. They just don't win. The genre just does not get the the establishment vote. That's just kind of how you call it within the the Hollywood sphere. So we're just not there yet, regrettably. We need to break some boundaries. If you're listening, uh, you know, the people that make those votes happen, you need to break those boundaries because there there are some truly great science fiction. All of our Academy Award uh, listeners out there, you need to (laughs) zero. It's zero right now. I think we're going to gain some from this. They heard me well, talk about Will Smith for twenty minutes last episode. Well, that that was kind of that was kind of how I wanted to wet our beak for tonight's episode, and uh, just talk, spend a little bit of time talking about the science fiction. I think we're all on the same page that we love the genre, and we really uh, we kind of wanted to have this discussion just to show its history and and how much it means to us and the great films that. Uh, that are being produced. So I think that that primes us to get ready to talk about some sci-fi virus films. And uh, let's just take a quick break. We're going to come back on the other side and we're going to get into the heart of this episode and do some feature reviews. I want to tell our listeners about another great podcast called Considering the Cinema, hosted by friend of our show, Jason Piles, a.k.a. Jay of the Dead. Jay's been podcasting now for at least a decade, and honestly was a big influence for me wanting to get into podcasting. Jay loves movies as much or more than anyone I've ever come across, and you quickly understand you're in great hands while listening to his show. He brings a unique perspective and enjoys giving his listeners something to think about. Plus, he's got the perfect podcasting voice. Don't just take my word for it, though. You can find his show on nearly every podcast directory and also interact with him on Twitter at Consider Cinema. All right. We're back, 
And so let's get to talking about some of these films. And I think tonight on our agenda, our first feature review is for 12 Monkeys. You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. No prints, no warrants. But he took on five cops like he was dusted to the eyeballs. What year is this? What year do you think it is? 1996. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? I am simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now. This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. All for all I know, you're <laughs> crazy as a loon. The army of the 12 monkeys, they're the ones that spread the virus. Monkeys. He's been living in a meticulously constructed fantasy world, and that world is starting to disintegrate. You haven't become addicted to that dying world? No, sir. He needs help. I think I'm crazy when people start dying next month. I don't belong here. You're here because of the system. All right, guys. Uh, 12 monkeys. Um, before I start this feature review... Um, I'm ashamed to admit it, and I'm going to go ahead and say it, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to speak up and judge me. I had not seen this film until we did this pod, or until we prepared for the podcast, and I'm embarrassed. It's a great film. Before I get into my review, I want to say I did not realize how big of a Bruce Willis fan I was until I started this movie. And then I got to looking back through his movies. It's not that I love every movie Bruce Willis has ever done. But I think he has six movies that are in my top 50 all time. Die Hard, T-Man. Oh, yeah. One of the best. <laughs> Unbreakable, Wes. Oh, yeah. I, I'm a big Unbreakable fan. Um, I love Unbreakable. 12 Monkeys. Uh, this is one that you guys probably both won't agree with me on. The Fifth Element. Oh, I love The Fifth Element. Oh, no. I'll, yeah, that's great. Love it. I gotta what, tell you a funny we, thing. We need about to talk that. about that some that that movie on the podcast sometime. Like it, it is awesome. It's super bizarre, but it it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I no, I agree. I think it's reviewed at like a sixty six percent. And something funny on that, since I did talk about the the lady last podcast, is I remember seeing the orange haired girl in that movie, and I was like, I don't know why. I mean, she looks weird, but she's kind of attractive to me. And I was like, who is that girl? And then last episode, when I talked about Resident Evil. Freaking Resident the, Evil. It's the star of Resident Evil. Yeah. Mila. Yeah. Mila. She's still around. Set a good I, career. I didn't recognize Of Resident Evil movies. She's been in the Fifth Element and the Resident it, Evil it, franchise. It, that's it. it. That's it. Nothing else. He was in that weird white top in the Fifth Element that just like stretches. It looks like a spider stretching across her body. And then she's in Resident Evil. Pulp Fiction. I mean... And The Sixth Sense. So six of my probably top 50 movies all time. Bruce Willis, I love all those movies. And I'm glad I got to watch. I had 12 monkeys to that list. Um, well, Bruce Will, I mean, Bruce Willis is a man. I love Bruce Willis. But whenever you said, you know, that you don't like, you know, all of Bruce Willis's movies, I was like, well, I hope not. Because <laughs> no, he, no, that's, what I, that's why I was he's been in some awful, awful dangerous. movies. But he's also been in some iconic movies. So, I mean, Bruce is a movie star, and he's beloved. And, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, Robert De Niro is one of our greatest actors ever. Like T-Man said, he got to a point in his life where he's just like, nah, I'm, I don't care. I'm done. I'm done 
making great movies. So I think actors, actresses, they do this. They just get to a certain point where they're just like, ah, I'm just going to collect checks. And <laughs> who can blame them? Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and Bruce has had one of those careers, which I always find really fascinating, where he, it's like been so up and down in the sense like he'll have this these huge hits and then he has several bombs in a row. I mean, Hudson Hawk, it was a notorious bomb. Bonfire of the Vannies, notorious bomb. People thought he was done. Then he comes back with Pulp Fiction. I mean, iconic. Comes back with that. Has a string of big hits. Has a few flops in a row. And then the Sixth Sense again. Like, you just can never count him out. He has had a really great career. Yeah. I mean, but when people think Bruce Willis, for some reason, every time I think Bruce Willis, I just think of him jumping a bus into a helicopter or something like that. But then when I got to really looking at his filmography, I was like, oh, man, he's done six of my top. But I was very specific when I said it, Wes. I was like, six of his films were in my top 50. I didn't say all of his. I love all of his films. Um, He's had some bobs for some stinkers for sure. Just don't look at his recent filmography either. I don't even know what he's doing. I think he's just like we've talked about collecting checks. But I love those six so very, 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 very much. Like, And they're some of my unique ones that are in my top 50, like The Fifth Element. And we should talk about that one time, Wes. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about the plot of this movie first, 12 Monkeys plot. And I wrote this one out. Um, in 1996, a deadly virus wipes out almost all of humanity, and humanity is forced to live under, underground. Bruce Willis, or James Cole as he's known in the film, is sent back in time to discover the original virus so science, scientists can study it and develop a cure. Unfortunately, he's sent back to 1990 instead of 1996. Don't you hate it when you put your number off by one uh, one digit when you're uh, operating your time machine, T-Man? I uh, hate that. Gets me every time. You know, you're like, you're trying to go back to a specific year and you just get it off by one digit. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, they should have known. Like, if I'm doing a time machine, I'm going to be very careful. I'm precise in that moment. But anyway, so he goes back to 1990 instead of 1996. Just <laughs> six years off. Um, on top of that, on the fact that he's six years off, he's stuck in a mental institution with Brad Pitt, um, who's crazy. The movie is about trying to change the timeline in those circumstances to discover the original virus. So that's the movie. That's the setup. Would you say there's anything that I need to add to that, Wes? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, that, that's that's pretty much it. But I did think it's funny that you brought up how, you know, they got they sent them back in time, you know, six years too far and it got it all screwed up. They actually do that twice in the movie, except for the second time they really screw up. And they send him all the way back to World War One. Oh, I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, they send him back, and he has a, a bullet scene. wound. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, do you see their technology they're working with? Like, what are what is this technology? I could not understand it. It's like, how are they inventing time travel when they like barely have any technology at all? But we won't take it too deep of a dive into that. But that's I probably mean, the thing that really the technology piece that really attracted me the whole film is that orb of CRT TVs. I don't know why. <laughs> it was so like weird. It's an orb of CRT TVs just moving around, like when he's in that weird chair. And I was like, "What? What is that?" Um, but it just so you guys know, and I didn't hit on this yet. It was directed by somebody from Monty Python. The uh, Terry Gillum is, is the yeah. director. Is it? Was he? An, 
was he an actor in Monty Python? I, I didn't even I, look at it. I think so. Yeah, he was, from my understanding, I'm not an expert on Monty Python, but I think he started and he kind of did an assortment of things within the troupe. He was an actor, director. I think he did a lot of animation stuff. And then he just kind of translated that into a film career. I love Monty Python too. If we, I mean, we should we should do something on that. I and love. He, he has a very interesting film career as as well. He has done some truly bizarre movies, and I think yes, I All think of his, films are his, his closest to Twelve Monkeys in in design and pacing and everything. I think is Brazil. Yeah, Brazil from the with Rob De Niro, a great science fiction film. Yep. And it's good as well. I think I, I give the edge to, to 12 Monkeys. I like it a little bit better. But, um, yeah, just a great – go from Monty Python and and then to get in and do these mind-bending, just amazing sci-fi films like Brazil, 12 Monkeys. Uh, just just a, a, a odd career but a very respectable career. And what I like about it, and that's a good point, Wes, is that – He's kind of so unique and original. You know, you feel there, there's so many directors out there that you, are just so like interdispensable. Like you don't even know they don't have a, a flair to them. And Terry Gilliam, he all his films have those very strange, like mechanical designs and magnifying glasses upon my magnifying glasses. And Brazil is like that, and Time Bandits, and then Twelve Monkeys. So even if you don't like all of his films, you could watch it and be like, "Wow, that's some cool stuff in there." So, so yeah, very respectable and very unique career. Me and Wes talked about it um, a little bit during the week this week. Um, I, I love this movie a lot, and I would almost argue that they don't make what you were just saying, T-Man, original movies like this, but they don't make movies like this very anymore. Like. And what I mean when I say that, I'm I'm talking about a movie that you really have to pay attention to. And mm-hmm. you, you don't really have to pay attention to this, but to catch everything, and I'm going to not be specific here because I don't want to spoil it, but you have to pay attention to this film, and it's very out there, but it all comes together at the end. And they just don't make a lot of those anymore. Yeah. And they're my favorite types of films. We were talking about, you know, like Memento, um, The Prestige, you know, those are like new age examples that I can think of movies that you really just got to pay attention to in the end it comes together. But they're my favorite types of films, and I, I'm kind of sad that we don't get a lot of this anymore. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think they do make these films anymore. And, you know, Hollywood is so, for the past 10 years or so, and, and maybe even longer than that, they've been so focused on the four-quadrant blockbusters, they say, to attract everybody. They've kind of forgotten about these mid-level dramas um, whether it's in the science fiction genre or whatever genre it is, that can do those very unique things with the plot. And so, yeah, they just don't make them anymore, which is sad because, you know, think about how many films that they could be making like this that they just don't make anymore. Um, I, I, really love it. I got it. to the end of this movie and I had to sit there and think for a while about all the implications. And it's probably why it's, it's, it was so popular and it spawned a television show, et cetera. Yeah, um, it, was a, it was a big hit. It was, a, it was a huge hit. Great movie. I'm embarrassed I hadn't seen it. But now to get some to, the, to my favorite time of the show. And there's a lot of them in this. What's your favorite with, time of the show, Gabe? Well, the fans call about it quite a bit. Um, we, <laughs> you know, our producer 
even brought it up this week how much the fans talk about it. Things that grind my gears. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, yeah, man. I, you know, even people stopped me on the street and was like, hey, <laughs> what's, Gabe, what's, what's grinding Gabe's gear this week? I was like, you got to listen to the show and find out. I know. It's like you can't get out of that superhero suit once you've gone down that path. But anyway. I think these uh, are some uh, – these ravings are similar to Brad Pitt's character in 12 Monkeys. I, I think they are. <laughs> All right. The, the first thing that grinds my gears about this flick is Bruce Willis couldn't even bathe for the movie, so we had to spend half the movie watching him bathe. <laughs> I'm not joking, Gabe. I, I can't even – like, I was watching this film because I hadn't seen it in years. And after the first, ba- you know, washing, I was like, well, okay, I guess it makes sense. He's dirty. After within five minutes and they're doing it again, I was like, all right, did the editor just forget about the previous watching? <laughs> like, why are they showing this exact thing? Did Bruce just arrive on says like, hey, listen, I didn't take a bath last night. I just need to be washed on. on. Was that in his contract? A lot, a lot of uh, to think about there. Bruce, I know you made some bad movie decisions early, but you made it big now, buddy. You got to take a bath before you get to work or they're going to bathe you on screen. Um you know what really grinds my gears is when you have to watch Brad Pitt act like he just took cocaine, drank 900 Jolt Colas, and a shot of five-hour energy for an Jolt entire movie. <laughs> the entire movie? I thought it was going to be like an act, like, oh, he's going to you know, stop doing this for the whole film. No, it's, it's the whole film. I mean, and I think he was nominated for this role, I'm pretty sure. Or did he win? I can't remember. Yeah, I, I, know, I know he was, he was nominated. 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 He was nominated, didn't win, but, I mean, it is a good performance. It's a little one-note, but it is still good. Yeah, it's definitely definitely over-the-top performance, and a lot of times the Academy doesn't really recognize these, like, super over-the-top performances like this, but he was was good in the movie, and I, I did really enjoy his character, especially, like, whenever you first meet him. But there towards the end, whenever, you know, he's he's got the long hair and you're, you're figuring out more about his character. And there's a party scene uh, that that Bruce Willis kind of shows up uh, and he's still kind of doing that same character, although he is he's out of the insane asylum. He's supposed to be in society. He's supposed to be putting together this army of the 12 monkeys kind of thing it's like who would follow this wack yeah, job so I never understood that. like this is the leader this is the guy everybody's following i just didn't buy it uh, another thing i want to mention with his character is i've never seen anybody in a movie flip off people so many times he flipped off people like it it's like a hundred times did you all notice that <laughs> He's like flipping people off every scene. Well, I think um, didn't that, that become like really more cool to do in in that early to mid nineties? Like I started yeah, seeing that. I think so more. And I guess Brad was just. I mean, he was a young young actor then. I guess he thought that you know who he was. Uh, there's this cool new thing that everybody's doing, so I'm just gonna do it over and over. Well, and Terry Gillum was like, "Yeah, man, go for it." I, I love it. Well, it's like, well, you're right. I think it was Generation X. That's you know MTV. All of this. And, you know, the he went full method. He was like, all right, I'm really going to go into this. And Terry was like, run with it. And, and Wait, he are just you saying kept... flipping people off was like saying, what's up? I... Is that what you're relating it to? I know. Yes. No, 
just the fact that it was just like you, you would see people kind of do that, you know, and all these teen movies in the 90s, you have like the girl make the kind of scrunch face and just kind of throw up the middle finger. You have the guys drinking and they're driving off and they're just kind of flipping their buddies off as they drive away kind of thing. That's all that's all we were saying. I think Brad <laughs> Brad was just on another level. Off. He flipped so many people off in that movie. I was just yeah. amazed. I didn't even know that was a trend, but I'm, I'm Brad Pitt wins then. I didn't know that was a thing going on. Another thing that grinds my gears is the planet Ogo. <laughs> Oh yeah, the I I I, I, I don't like the whole know. planet. No, I wasn't a fan of Ogo, and I didn't know what was happening <laughs> in that scene. I wanted to get away from that scene as fast as possible. <laughs> that old man in the in the asylum that just says Ogo, the planet Ogo, over and over again. What is that? I don't know. You know what? I you know what really grinds my gears is when you get mooned by Brad Pitt while he's tearing pillows, jumping around on beds in the middle of an insane asylum. I would say a lot of our lady listeners probably don't share your sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. That, that might be a popular that. scene. That got their gears going. Uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know what really grinds my gears? Watching Bruce Willis stick his head out of a moving car like a dog for an entire three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that scene made sense. He was stuck underneath ground for years, but that was pretty good. He, he hadn't seen he hadn't seen air in forever. Um, you know what really grinds my gears is sitting in a metal seat six feet off the ground while a bunch of scientists talk to you. Oh, and don't forget the TV with like all the different little screens within it. And that orb TV just following you around when you're up in the air. You know, they actually they got sued for that scene. Really? Because, yeah, apparently there's some kind of uh, another person had a concept of this and had put the concept out. I don't know if it was in art or on video or what it was. I should have read it a little. I didn't know this was going to come up tonight. I should have read, paid attention to it a little bit more, but yeah, they had to, they had to, to pay a, a hefty fine for that because they basically infringed upon uh, someone else's copyright. Wow. Interesting. I didn't know that. I'll tell you what really grinds my gears is when you finally get the love of your life to like you, you check into your one-hour motel, and a crocodile Dundee-looking guy just busts in there and ruins your love scene. That that had to—I know Bruce is like, man, I've been locked underneath ground for you know years in the future. <laughs> I traveled back in time, met the love of my life, and this guy comes into the room. Seriously, I went back to a war hundreds of years ago, got shot in the leg, and now I'm finally getting ready to make my debut with the love of my life. And this crocodile Dundee character is going to bust in my one-hour motel. You know, actually, and this really does grind my gears that 24-hour Hitchcock theaters don't exist like they are in that, that film. I wish that did <laughs> yeah, exist. I noticed that. I was like, that's awesome. They did like a 24-hour Hitchcock marathon. I would do that in a heartbeat. Well, I, and I don't want to ruin this part, but again, this movie was partially homage to some of Hitchcock's movies. And yeah. Madeline Stowe's character, and again, I, I, I don't want to ruin the ending of the movie, but Madeline Stowe's character is made up exactly like Kim Novak's character at the end of Vertigo. Yeah, I thought you're exactly. right. Exactly. And so, I forgot, I, I didn't realize that was going to happen until and I, I didn't even catch that when I first saw it when I was a kid. Yeah, and, and so that, that's why they have the, the, the Hitchcock, you know, they Terry Gilliam obviously really respected him a lot, and they were kind of homaging some Hitchcock stuff. So I thought that was a really cool nugget that, mm-hmm. that they threw in there, that, that they did go to the... Um, 24 hour, you know, Hitchcock theater. One time me and my wife's friends, we all went to the beach and there was like eight of us and it rained the whole time. And we were staying in like one of the, 
or their friend's parents' house, and all they didn't have cable, but all they had was Hitchcock. They had the ultimate Alfred Hitchcock collection, and that's all we did for like two days straight. It was best. It was a great two days. I enjoyed it more than the beach, hey, so I really wish that existed. Nothing's um, better than Hitchcock. Nothing really in life, maybe. All right, these last two are my favorite. <laughs> life, all right, maybe I went, I went a little uh, marriage, uh, children. So I have one question about this film. I love a good time loop film. Um, I won't, don't want to talk about any of the big questions because I don't. For people that haven't seen the film, I don't want to ruin it. Definitely but, not. But I do have a similar question that won't ruin anything. And I want to ask you and Wes this. Can you alter anything in a time loop? I've seen movies that say yes, and I've seen movies that say no, or say barely. So I've seen, uh, I've seen movies that say, like, basically, if you touch something, uh, it changes everything. Mm. And I've seen um, movies where you can barely change anything and do a ton of stuff. So there's two trains of thought. And what do you guys think? Are you, are you saying, basically... If you if you do something that it can change something, and if so, that yeah, I definitely think it can. Like think of all the movies like Back to the Future, or do the Terminator you think little movies. things that you do would do back back in time would have big impacts yeah. or little impacts on the future. Well, I think I think little things would probably have little impacts, but the big things would have big impacts. Well, I th- I think Twelve Monkeys is unique in the fact that most. Um, time travel movies approach it from if you do something then it's going to completely change the course of the future whereas 12 monkeys is basically whatever has happened will always have happened and there's really not a lot that you can do whenever you go back to alter what has already happened and i thought that was a really unique uh, approach to the film and it's um I, I really thought the time travel aspect of it, this is the type of stuff, and it's, and it's told nonlinear as well, this movie is. These are the types of things where we don't have as much of those kind of brain teaser type movies where it really makes you think. And that's what wow. I loved about 12 Monkeys. And I know, Gabe, you did a whole lot of the grind my, my gears things. But, you know, this movie, it, it, it is kind of fun. It is kind of quirky. But at the end of the day, it is extremely well put together. It's extremely brainy. It asks some interesting questions of its viewers. And you really, really think about the movie a lot after it's over. And like you said, I love how everything all comes together and it wraps up kind of neatly for such a, a, a movie that um, makes you think so much when you're done seeing it. Yeah, I'm, I couldn't agree more. The, there's a famous... Um, I, I just don't think that I'm vain enough to think that anything that I could do could alter the, the timeline. I think it's almost vain to think that. But, you know, like, do you remember the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror when uh, when uh, Homer had the t- toaster that let him travel back in time? Oh, he yeah. basically he steps what? on a mosquito. One of the best. Yeah, he steps on a mosquito and Flanders becomes the ruler of Earth. Um, right, right. He sits on a fish and everyone's a giant. He one time he sneezes and kills all the dinosaurs. He comes back and everybody's rich. Um, and he asks for a donut and Marge is like, what's a donut? And then he screams and go, and he's like, he thinks that he's ruined everything. It, it's hilarious. But basically little thing, little things that he did have had big impacts, but this is a movie where it's hard to have an impact. And I think that I'm more of a person be hard for me to have an impact. It, on indeed, something. 
to that point, I think what you're really talking about is, is the butterfly effect, you know, where any little thing can have that ripple effect through time. And I think that's kind of what that Simpsons episode is all about is he's doing little things, which has big impacts big you know, impact. when he goes to the next, when he goes into the next timeline. So I think, I just don't think I'd have big impacts. Like, I mean, what do I do in an average day that could have a big impact? <laughs> I, I, and that's kind of how I'm thinking too, is most of the time, we it wouldn't have that big impact, I, I would say. But I think Wes, you make a really great point about how this film does time travel a little bit differently, in that it's saying that time is already set. Like there, Bruce isn't really going back to change what happened. He's going back to try to uh, figure out the virus so they can ultimately live a life in the future. And I thought that was also a really interesting way to do time travel. And to your point about the film overall and just the unique aspects of it and how it really made you think. You're right. A lot of movies don't do that anymore. In a lot of ways, it's kind of sad that Hollywood has gotten away from that type of film. I don't know if Hollywood's to blame or the audience is to blame. Probably a little both. But it, but I wish we did have more films like this being made that really challenged you. That that that's that I couldn't have said it any better. The only thing that I I'm doing because of this movie, if I ever do get sent back in time, I'm memorizing lottery numbers every week because um, I'm. I, <laughs> There's why don't you do that? I will change. Is I will be a millionaire back. Why in don't time. you do the Back to the Future Biff? Remember, doesn't he like go and goes he, he and predicts when the gambling. Cubs? The, sport, the sports oh. almanac. Yes. <laughs> he does sports gambling. I'm I'm going to step up. I'm memorizing the lottery numbers every week, just in case. You know, just in case. But um. So, Gabe, what was your what what was your favorite scene? Well, of Twelve Monkeys. I'm glad you asked that. Probably my favorite scene of Twelve Monkeys. The whole sequence when he's trying to escape from the insane asylum, Brad Pitt's yelling at him to go, and he's on drugs and he's running out. It just, it, it is what the whole movie is. It's, it's out there, but it's awesome simultaneously, but it, it's weird to watch while it's happening. That's probably my favorite sequence. Well, I, I think I, I like that scene as well. I think it's, it's funny how the security guards and doctors and stuff that are trying to, to you know, they realize that Bruce Willis is trying to escape. You know, they get him locked up in that room, and then all of a sudden he's gone because, again, you know, he's the people who are kind of in charge of the time travel. You know, they basically scooped him back out of 1990 to get him where he was supposed to be, and then the security guards and everybody are looking at that ceiling that's like 20 feet high, and they're wondering how he got up to that duck. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, no, no, great. All both are great scenes. And uh, Wes, did you have a favorite scene? Did you mention that? Well, yeah. So my favorite scene is, and I'm gonna, I, I'll try not to ruin too much of it because it, it happens more towards the end. But I really love when Madeline Stowe's character figures out that Bruce Willis's character is actually a time traveler. Mm. You know, she, she, yeah. she, and it almost he almost starts believing that he's crazy. You know, he's kind of flipped. He's like knows that he's time traveling, but then all this stuff has happened and he starts kind of reverting. Yeah. Maybe, it, it, maybe I'm yeah. crazy. And she's right. convincing, convincing him that, no, you're not crazy and shows him evidence. And then I won't kind of ruin it, but she basically shows him this old style bullet from world war one. And I just thought that was just a cool way to prove to Madeline Stowe's character you know, he's not crazy. Get on board with what's happening with him. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I love that aspect of of how the time travel had kind of, you know, impacted Bruce so much 
that he truly thought he was going crazy, but but he wasn't, as, as you say. And I think my favorite scene would be, and I'm not going to ruin it at all, is the end, end sequence. I've always loved that finale, so that, the, the climax of it. Yeah, Gabe, what were you going to say? That, that was mine, but I, I didn't want to say it. Um, that is what? my actual favorite, but I didn't. I, so when Wes asked me, I had to like pause because I don't want to <laughs> ruin just, anything. <laughs> Gabe lied. It was, that was his, this is his favorite scene to you. Well, I, I technically <laughs> viewers, you've been lying to our listeners. Lying to our listeners. <laughs> Gabe is going back into the past, and he's going to change this. He's going to go right. back into the podcast. Don't accidentally send me back six years earlier, Wes. Let me go back and fix the edit this podcast so I can say the right scene. <laughs> that's great i but yeah i'm not gonna ruin it at all i'm literally just gonna say it, i just think it, it's it's so great how it comes together um and so that's all i'm gonna say on it yep all right final ratings for the film um west i'm a, i'm actually gonna go with an eight and a half out of ten on this one i i really enjoyed this movie i had seen it before uh and then i watched it again for this podcast and i was just glued to the tv like i loved uh this movie uh like i said i i sat there after it was over and just kind of thought about the time travel i thought a lot about the phone call and the voice uh, mail that they were supposed to leave uh, i thought that was really cool how that came together you know again the end scene i thought a lot about it and uh, and just what the movie was trying to say and then the very, very end, like the very last scene of the movie on the airplane and just the woman's response to the guy, I just loved her response. Mm. Um, that it, it doesn't even really move, uh, ruin anything of the movie for me to say when she says, I'm an insurance. And I just thought that was so cool how they, they wrap it up and that's how the movie, you know, kind of goes out. Um, but yeah, this is, this is a great movie. And I highly recommend people go in and, and check it out. Uh, if you haven't seen it uh, anytime recently, it's it's worth a revisit. T-Man? Yeah, I would go, I would say I would go with an 8 out of 10. Really good movie. Really enjoyable on the rewatch. It, there are some uh, parts to it in the beginning and towards the middle that gets a little Terry Gilliam-ish, I guess you could say, where Bruce is kind of going crazy. He's drooling a lot throughout the first half of the movie. Um, he's in that assailant side. So that drags it down a little bit, but it really starts to come together in that second half. And towards the end, it, the last 30 minutes are really just unimpeachable. Just great stuff. So many great sequences in a row. And I just really enjoyed rewatching it. And like you said, Wes, a lot of food for thought, too, um, on the rewatch. See, I'm going to have to disagree with you there, T-Man. I think we needed more drool from Bruce. We <laughs> We wanted him to drool more. We needed more. Um, he drilled so a, much in that first 30 minutes. I was like, man, he is drilling way too much for we, me. We need, <laughs> I wanted Brad Pitt. We need mannequins in there while he's drilling. <laughs> That's one thing I don't like in movies is like characters drilling profusely. And that was just like, uh, too much. I, I wanted more drill from Bruce and I wanted to give 40 more surges to Brad Pitt. I thought he should have just keep, went further with it. Just go crazier. But uh, my final review is um, I completely agree with you, Wes. I'm not ashamed to say this. At the end of the movie, I paused for a second, and I had to think before I, I was like, oh. And I, I was like, I get it. I get what just happened. And I haven't had to do that in a movie in, I'm not saying I'm smart, but I just haven't had to do that in a while. 
I can't remember the last movie that I've had to really sit and think about. Um, and I wish there were more of them because that's what I enjoy. So I'm going to give it a nine out of 10. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our feature review for 12 Monkeys, and we're just going to go straight into another feature review. And T-Man is going to review a uh, feature review tonight, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Our therapy enables the brain to repair itself. We call it the cure. I want you to start testing on chimps ASAP. We test one subject. I want to make sure it's stable. I designed the 112 for repair, but Caesar's gone way beyond that. You mean increased intelligence? Skills that far exceed that of a human counterpart. This is wrong, Will. It works. And what about Caesar? Where does he fit in? That ship's company property. He hasn't spent any time with other chimps. They're not people, you know. You're trying to control things that are not meant to be controlled. They are contaminated. Put those apes down. You have no idea what you're dealing with. Great, Wes. Thanks so much. And yeah, let's talk about Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So if you all remember this film, it came out in 2011, and it's basically a prequel to the Planet of the Apes series. So I know we weren't around in that ser- in that timeline in the 60s when it first started, but that was a really iconic movie series. And I'm just going to read you the list of films from the series. So it started out with Planet of the Apes, 1968. Really iconic film, star Charlton Heston. Uh, it's a really great film, still holds up to this day. And I think we even talked about earlier how it, it really kind of went into the, the themes of that decade, civil rights, um, a lot about race relations, all of that type of information. And then the film series just continued on. So then we got into Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape from Planet of the Apes, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. And then Battle the Planet uh, for the Planet. I'm not sure why Conquest became before Battle for the Planet of the Apes, but we won't get into that. They used the word Conquest. <laughs> I don't know either. And I, I'll say something about the original series. While the first one is really great, the other ones aren't that good. You know, I, they they were always on TV when I was younger, and I and I've watched them and rewatched them, and they didn't really they don't really hold up that well. And then the series kind of went dead for a long time. Now, they did have a TV series and an animated series, and it came back in 2001 with the Mark Wahlberg film. I'm sure you all remember that. Uh, Tim Burton. While it was a big hit, it's not that good of a film. Uh, um, yeah. And that's why they didn't continue on with that initial you know, sequence. The, the, the plot twist doesn't make any sense. Mark Wahlberg, it's, it's not one of his better performances, not one of Tim Burton's better films. So they didn't continue on with that, and then it kind of went, you know. And the, eight, again. And the eight, eight people look terrible in it as well. I think they look yeah. really bad for 2001. Yeah, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Leaving being like, oh, that wasn't a very good movie. I went with my parents, and, and I was just like, oh, that was 
Yeah, it was a disappointment, I think. It definitely was. And and that's why they didn't continue on with that series, even though it did make money. So it didn't they didn't really do anything with it for a long time. But then they came back with this one, which is Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And honestly, I was hesitant when I remember this coming out. I was like, oh, how are they gonna do this? What is it like prequels? They're usually not that good. But when it came out, and even on this rewatch, I was just like, wow, that is a great film. And really, this is how you do a reboot of a series, honestly. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. Whenever I, because I watched the, the 2001 version as well, and did, I, I don't even know if I finished it. I know that I did not <laughs> like it at here. all. You yeah. went back in time. You tried to go I, back in time to erase you from watching a, it. I tried to men in black myself that I never saw <laughs> that movie. But um, no, I'm 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 with you on that. I, I was not very excited to see this movie, and I didn't even go see it in theaters. Um, I, I waited until it came out on video because, again, I was like, I I mean, I mean, the trailer, if I remember, was a tad underwhelming. I was like, ah, that I mean, that looks like that could be a pretty good, mm-hmm. pretty good yeah. movie. Oh, I'm not gonna rush out and see it, especially how bad the last one was. But I thought I, I'll red box it sometime and watch it. But no. I, I'm with you. It was, you're right. It's a, that's exactly, that's the blueprint for rebooting a popular series. Yeah, I I think so too. And I'm going to get into prequels here in a second, but to give you an idea of the plot. So basically it's premise is actually really similar to the fourth film in the original series, which is conquest of the planet of the apes, but it's not really a direct remake of that film. So it does kind of play homage to that original series, which is good for like really true Planet of the Apes film fans, which there really are out there. I mean, it's really a famous and iconic film series. So in this film. Well, yeah, I mean, again, look at at 2001. It was a it was not a very good movie at all, but it was it was a big hit Yeah. at the same time, like as far as box office revenue goes. And, and that's simply because there was probably bad word of mouth from it. But again, people are fans of the movie and they came out anyway to see it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that. I mean, it, it really is a popular film series. So in this film, the, the plot basically is that a substance de- designed to help the brain repair itself um, from you know such things as Alzheimer's disease gives advanced intelligence to a chimpanzee named Caesar. And if for films of the original film series, you will remember Caesar was basically their um, iconic hero, that their revolutionary that freed them from, you know, you know, being, you know, apes and rose them up into the leaders of the world. And so what happens is they administer the same treatment to an animal shelter full of other apes. And it ultimately ultimately leads to an uprising um against human against humanity and won't go into the plot plot further from that but that really kind of delves you into what actually happens in the film a couple of points i want to make uh, about the movie so wes you kind of mentioned it about how the the body suits in the 2001 were not well designed at all they just didn't look that good so what they decided to do with this film was do performance capture, basically. And that's what they did for Gollum in Lord of the Rings. And they brought in the master of the art, Andy Serkis, to play Caesar. And I'm telling you, he gives such a great performance as Caesar. It is hard to even think that it's special effects. Like, 
there is no way they could have done a better job with like plastics and or like a bodysuit than what they did with him. And basically how they do this type of special effects, if people don't aren't familiar with it, is he's actually in the movie being filmed acting as the actor, as Caesar. And then the special effects crew comes in and edits around him. So it's really his performance. And he gives such an iconic performance as Caesar, and he continues on with the series. And I just want to call him out how good he is in that role. What do you all think about Andy Serkis in that role? He, it's truly one of my favorite characters in all of movies. And if we were if we were actually spending time on this as a, as a trilogy, I would say th- this new Apes trilogy is one of my favorite trilogies of all time. Like I, I really, really enjoy these movies, but him especially, I just, um, he just has such a presence on the screen and they did a, a Andy Serkis did an amazing job. The writers did an amazing job with him. The special effects guys did an amazing job with Caesar, but he's just, he's an iconic leader. Yeah. And it, it, he, it's, it's, it's crazy as it is to say, it's believable that this smart ape, which they call him in Rise of the Planet of the Apes in the movie review, you can see how he is kind of becoming truly the most powerful leader in the world after, you know, this virus outbreak. Yeah, they do such a good job with it. And there are several other aspects I really like with the film. Um once again, what I really like when films do homages to previous films, um, I loved how they brought in Icarus, which is the spaceship from the original 1968 film. So they do a little snapshot of, of them watching TV, and they, it shows how a spaceship is missing, and they talk about how it's Icarus. That's the spaceship that goes missing in the original 1968 version, which I really liked. And then, of course, they had to bring in the iconic line. And so one of the villains of the movie is Draco Malfoy from Harry Potter. And when he, when Caesar basically finally rises up against a human, and Draco, they reverse the line, and he says, "Get your, you know, paws off me, you damn dirty ape." Um, that's just, I loved how they brought that back because, of course, that's such an iconic line. So I thought that was really cool. Also, well, anytime you're going to reboot something that's so popular, I think you've got to you've got to throw some of this stuff in there for yeah. kind of the true fans of the original because they they really eat that stuff up. I mean, I know that I do. Yeah, I do too. About something there, real cool. quick. Draco Malfoy versus Harry Potter, 0-1. Draco Malfoy versus Monkeys, 0-1. Does Draco Malfoy beat anything? <laughs> no, he, his, he has definitely gotten typecast as a villain who always loses. <laughs> <laughs> he never wins. So, no, that's great. And, um, yeah, continuing on with, with this series, there's, there's a couple of things I want to talk about with the film series in general. One is... I kind of call this film series in or this movie in the subgenre of the don't mess with mother nature subgenre. And it's where basically uh, humans always think we're smarter than, you know, mother nature, God, the world, whatever you want to call it. And we kind of like invent things and it always comes back on us. So in this one, of course, we're trying to cure Alzheimer's, which is very, you know, a great lofty goal. But what happens? We ends up we end up creating super smart apes, and we end up ultimately creating a virus that um, I won't ruin anything. But that's why we're doing this film. There's a virus uh, subplot to it. 
that you're going to have to really watch to kind of figure out how that fits into the narrative. And, you um, know, when you say it like that, you kind of think, man, that's a big stretch. Um, we're trying to cure Alzheimer's. Oh, look, the apes are taking over the world. But the way the movie does it, it just is so much more believable. Yeah. It, so that's really, where, Wes, that's where your mind went when he said that. I thought that's the plot of Deep Blue Sea. They're trying to cure Alzheimer's, but they create a, a subset of See, super sharks. That's also in the subgenre of don't mess with Mother Nature. It's my new favorite subgenre. Samuel L. Jackson oh, learned that the hard way. What are some other ones that you guys can think of? So I can think of a couple off my top of my head. Jurassic Park. I mean, right there. Trying to create dinosaurs. Jeff Goldblum says it. You know, what does he say in the movie? He's like, you, you know, you just because you can do it, you never thought about if you should do it. Man creates dinosaurs. Something, uh, women inherit the earth. What's that saying? I forget it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I knew where you're going with that. I was like, don't do it, Gabe. Because do it. I, tried... I stopped. Don't, I don't try... It's hard to come up with uh, lines right off the top of your head with these films. Gabe, um, Gabe is like Tommy Boy with these quotes from movies. <laughs> I shouldn't be giving him. No, you, Gabe will start. Audience, you'll notice this. Gabe will start with a movie cr- quote, and then it will tear <laughs> off into somewhere else. You're like, wait a minute, was that the quote? That's that's uh, one of the side effects of ADD. Gabe, like you, you stick your head up a butcher's ass, you know. But would you rather take his word for it? Wouldn't you rather take the butcher's word for it? <laughs> um. So, what are the other ones? So, are there any others that you all can think of that are like in this subgenre of don't mess with human nature because it always comes back on us? I know there's some other ones. Well, I mean, the very first movie that we featured reviewed, Outbreak. There you go. Outbreak. Once Same again, trying to use yeah, it for to... Uh, a weapon. Make, yeah, a, make a military weapon out of it, and it winds up taking over the whole earth. Yeah, it, they always do that. So I, I just it's just humorous. It's like when man thinks they're smarter than, you know, either Mother Nature or trying to be God. I love it in those films where it always comes back on us because it, it always does. It's inevitable. Avatar. Avatar. Yeah. I mean, when we're trying to. Well, I don't know if that counts, but it's similar, similar type type concept, I think. Um, but, yeah, think of any others as we continue on. And the other thing I want to mention was. Uh, and Wes, you and I kind of talked about this briefly, uh, is so the prequel is kind of a newer concept in movies where basically, you know, that you take an established movie and franchise instead of sequelizing it. And it's usually because they've already done like tons of sequels, they'll prequelize it. So they'll make a movie that takes place before. Most of the times I would argue those aren't that good. And a lot of times they may not even be that interesting because, you know, you kind of already know where the where the movie's going to end. So I, I want to ask you all what you think. Is this the best prequel of all time or, or is there something better? What do you think is in the running with this film as the best prequel? That's a good question. Putting us on the spot. Whenever you started talking about prequels, one movie did pop in to my mind a little bit. I thought was really well done and it's paranormal activity three. Mm-hmm. And it's one. where, yeah, you know, where, Basically, the main character, I can't think of her name right now, but her and her sister, whenever they're younger, it goes back, I think, into the 80s, and they take the big 80s-style home video recorder, and they put it on the the fan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. 
Yeah, I mean that that is a a pretty solid uh, scary movie. Um, that's one that jumps out. Uh, so, I don't know how it compares to this one, but I think both of them are very strong. Uh, here's a couple other options. Funny. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Um, the the reboot of Star Trek, I would say that's in the running. Oh uh, nine, yeah, and they brought yep, that that's back. A that's one. a really good one. What about Batman Begins? I mean, would you classify uh, that? As pretty- yeah. Yeah, I would probably give the nod. I would actually probably give the nod to Batman Begins even over this one. Um, but they, they would be close. That, that's a good comparison, I think. Probably better than my Paranormal Activity one. Now, Gabe, what do you think? Do you have any others that you think beat Rise of the Planet of the Apes? Uh, no, I think Red Dragon's pretty good. Um, okay, I think yeah. X-Men First Class is pretty good. That's a good one. That is actually one of the better X Men movies. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna tickle Wes's fancy. I'm gonna go Casino Royale. Is pretty good. Is that would that be considered a prequel? You know, that's, I that's thought like about a, that. I mean, it's definitely a reboot. Um, but he is he's not even a double O. Whenever the movie very first starts, he kind of that's the start of the movie is him getting double O status. Right. I mean, I, I guess that technically would count but i i just i don't know it doesn't feel like a prequel to me if that makes Either. sense it to me if they're going to do a prequel of james bond and we won't we'll do a james bond episode i'm sure in the future is he would have to be like a younger agent i think you know getting into the service something like that so i, I agree i don't think i don't look at that necessarily as a prequel so i'm gonna throw one last one out there I, i've you. got one I, i've got one i wanted to bring up okay. indiana jones and the temple of uh, Ooh, no, no 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 last crusade Right, it's in Last Crusade, the beginning no. of Last Crusade. Whenever it's like the young Indiana Jones, y'all are both right. So Temple of Doom is a prequel, but you're right, Wes. That beginning sequence in uh, Last Crusade is also a prequel it, to it. Oh yeah, you're right. And see, oh. that's what I was. That's what I was just about to mention. I was going to say it's not a whole movie, right? But yeah, I really like that that scene. I, uh, River Phoenix does a fantastic job. I don't, I don't know why he just. I was like, okay, this to me, yeah. this, this is Indiana Jones as a teenager. So good, so good, and and even Temple of Doom is fun. You know, it's not the best Indiana Jones, but you know, it's still a really fun movie to watch. So I think that's a good one, also, Gabe. So I'm gonna throw one last one out there to you all. So what about this? What about half of Godfather Two? Can't do the whole film. You can only do half of it. It's the Robert De Niro part. So it's like an hour and twenty minutes of it. But, you know, I'd put yeah. that hour and minutes up to it to almost any other film. Well, history. yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're if you're going to count. <laughs> Hold on, God is that Father technically two, a prequel? Yeah. Not yeah. The whole, not the whole movie. Like, it, it's just sections of it, like what we were just talking about with um, with Last Crusade. Right. I'm cheating there a little bit. Kind of, Yeah, Wes and I kind of did similar type things there. So, all right. So that's fun to talk about those prequels. And the last thing I want to talk about is kind of our usual thing is best scene. So I'm just going to jump out of here with best scene and say that I love the sequence that I just talked about earlier where Caesar finally rises up against the human. And I don't want to ruin it because it's so good, but he does, you know, Draco does say that famous line and then Caesar kind of has a reaction to that. But that's all I really want to say because I think that scene is really powerful. Well, that's really my favorite. I think you're ruining too much with that. That's kind of more in the mid, kind of the middle of the film. Um, you know, where he's like, no, you know, and he kind of kind of speaks for the first time. I don't think that that ruins too much. I mean, people know that 
you know, Caesar, they, they eventually start talking and, and stuff. But no, it is, it almost kind of sends chills. It is. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, no, that, that is a great scene. I love that pick. Yeah. What about you guys, Wes? What, what's your favorite scene in the movie? Mine actually does take place in the climax of the film. So I'm going to be very vague with it. But there is a um, bridge scene and um, on the Golden Gate uh, Bridge. And there's a there's one specific part where it's ape versus helicopter. And again, <laughs> yeah. I, you got to have a good helicopter in a pandemic film. Like it, it's just a must. <laughs> Three times. Three Every weeks time. in a row. Apparently, we got a good helicopter in there but no that that would be mine there was a there's a lot of emotion in that scene and it's just a badass scene honestly awesome gabe what about you well i gotta pause to talk about that poor guy that lives next to the planet of the apes guys let's talk about his bad luck he he got his car stolen he got he got uh bit by an ape he got sneezed on by an ape with the virus and (laughs) right into his yard he misses his flight because of of the problem with the ape (laughs) And then once the car's repaired, the monkey jumps on his car, which I think is a is like a Mustang again. So I hate, you know, Wes talked about it earlier. He just hates when they punish um, a character in a film. He talked about it with 28 Weeks Later uh, over and over again. I hate it too, Wes. And that poor guy got punished this time. <laughs> well, see, but they that, did, they did that make him a almost, jerk, though. Yeah, he was kind of a jerk. And it was also some... I think mild supposed to be mild comic relief a little bit in such a serious movie. Um, but at 20, 28 weeks, it was just so, so serious and just so brutal each time. That's, that's where it really gave it grinded my gears. Well, Wes, it was serious for me for this guy. So, um, <laughs> but the, the best scene in the movie for me, um, and I hate that we're all three saying we don't want to ruin stuff, but, um, I'll I'll do it this way. In the beginning of the movie, there's a scene where they all go to the Redwood Park and they they enjoy their time there. And the monkey finally gets to be a monkey. There's a scene at the end of the movie where the bat, or and the ape finally gets to be an ape. Um, and there's a scene at the end of the movie where they go back to that same park. And that's my favorite sequence in the movie. Yeah, I I, I can see that for sure. That also is an emotional scene. Which no, it's great. That's a yeah. great. That, this isn't my favorite scene of the movie, but I think there there's a really cool shot that the director winds up doing. It's it's of the road on both sides of the road. You've got lines of fully filled out trees, and um, oh, yeah. all the cars are park, parked under them. And you've got all these apes going through the trees, and just the way that oh. they shoot that, where all the leaves are are kind of coming down, almost like it's snow. I just love love that shot and 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 that little that that little scene there. It's not my favorite, but I, I thought that was a, a cool. Yeah, spot. they put that in the trailer. It's a it's, great shot for sure. It's the best short sequence. That and when they're all in the building looking down on the person on the the scientist that had 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 uh, done experiments on him early on, and they're all looking down on him from up above. I thought that's that shot was just. Creepy oh, kind of like the, the like the head guy. Yeah, the head guy. When they're all yeah. in that circular building and they're all looking down on him, and he's, he's in his up. pinstripe suit. He's ordering people around. He's going to go forward with this experiment of this virus that James Franco's character is telling him. You know, it's it's not ready. We got to be careful with it. And he's just so confident. But yeah, that that's great. He definitely. Those gets two his scenes up. are so good. 
I like this director a lot. Yeah, he's good, which, which is surprising because he really hasn't done anything since this film, which is a little strange. Um, <laughs> so maybe, hopefully, uh, it's Rupert Wyatt. Maybe he'll he'll do a good film. He did The Gambler with Mark Wahlberg, but you know he hasn't really done anything since that. So hopefully he gets back into it because he is a really good director. And the last thing I'll talk about before we get into our final reviews for it is, um, while it's a great film and we've talked so much about why we like it, the only thing that that kind of grinds my gears to get back to Gabe's point is I just don't believe James Franco as this world-renowned scientist. I'm sorry. Like, I like James. He's been <laughs> in some good movies, but he just doesn't exude, like, world genius scientist. <laughs> Why is that, no. man? I think he's turning he, his career around. I no, think he's a good actor. You really? Uh, no, his career might be over at this point, to be honest with you. But, yeah, he, it's just... I don't know. He's more of like, he can play like a comedian. Like he's great in comedies. Um, he's really good in, you know, 20, uh, 27 hours. Is that what it's called? I can't remember the exact. Yeah, I was getting ready to say, dude, did you see yeah. the movie where he got stuck by a rock? He's he actually crazy. really good in that. But uh, he's, he's I think his best role is, is spring breakers. That character that he plays in that, like well, he is, he, he, he can just play transforms himself. Like he is great. in. But no, I, I'm with you. I don't, I think it was an odd casting choice. I will say this about that. I feel like he did about as good as he possibly could do yep, in that character. But you're right. It still was lacking a little bit. He's not, he's, you know, James Franco, he's, he's a good looking guy. He looks kind of more like a chill type person. Exactly. And he just kind of has that look, he especially like kind of his smile. Um, but yeah, it was it was a little bit of an odd casting choice. But again, I don't know if they thought this was going to be this big, massive kind of hit and set off this huge trilogy either. Um, and he was a big name at that time. Yeah, I, no, I don't think I think you're right, Wes. I think somebody like a Chris Pine would have been a better option, or somebody that is just a little more believable um, in that type of role. Um, but you know, still, still really good film. And like you said, he still did the best he could with, within the performance. So overall saying good looking guys can't be smart, but you know, go on. No, no, not at all. We (laughs) want him to have, you know, (laughs) not at all game, but overall, I think the movie is really good back to what we were talking about. It's really as good of a job they could have done with a prequel. You know, I think the film had really low expectations and they kind of hit it out of the park and it created and it continued with the original series. It created this new series, which is now considered to be really great. And I hope they continue on with the series. So once again, Andy Serkis, amazing in that role, great writing, really good direction. I would give it, you know, probably an eight and a half out of 10. What about you guys? Where would you go with it? Uh, for me, it's a little bit lower than 12 monkeys. It's a good reboot. Great reboot, great trilogy. I am more about an 7.5 to 8 out of 10. I Actually, of the trilogy, Dawn is my favorite, which is is the second one. Um, I really love the world that they created there. and um, But this one is really, it's really close to that. I recently watched it, and I liked it. I f- this was the third time I'd seen it, and... I liked it the most of any other time I had viewed it. Agreed. So I'm going to come in. And so what that tells me is that this movie, it holds up. It gets better with additional watches. 
And um, I'm going to come in at an 8 out of 10 on this as well. Uh, like I said, I like Dawn the best of the trilogy, but this is this is really close to that. And a little bit better than I remembered. Awesome. All right. Well, that's our uh, feature review for Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And we're going to get into the last section of our podcast tonight, and we're going to be feature reviewing 1971's The Andromeda Strain. Now, don't be scared. I'm a doctor. Where am I? A special laboratory in Nevada. We brought you here. You're sick. In a true biological crisis, which our exploration of space could bring about, the present lunar receiving laboratory might prove inadequate. I therefore urge the establishment of a facility to deal specifically with an extraterrestrial form of life. Seems to me, General, Dr. Stone put one over on you. In fact, he made us all think his wildfire lab could handle any contamination from outer space. Isolate and identify. Good God. It's no accident. I suspect they were looking for the ultimate biological weapon. You can change everything. It's crazy. I didn't know buzzards fly at night. Buzzards only come when something's dead. Landau Decker to Cable One. What's happening? We see bodies. Lots of them. These people were cut down in mid-stride. Everybody's dead! You! You did it! All right. So I'll take us through the synopsis for the Andromeda Strain, and I pulled this from Wikipedia. The Andromeda Strain, like I said, is 1971 American sci-fi thriller produced and directed by Robert Wise, who actually has a great filmography, a uh, very, uh, very well-respected director. It's based on Michael Crichton's 1969 novel of the same name. The film stars Arthur Hill, James Olsen, Kate Reed, and David Wayne. And I read that like I knew exactly who all these people are. And uh, I'm sad to say I really were not familiar with any of these uh, I, actors. I wasn't either. I wasn't either. But uh, anyway, it's uh, based on a team of scientists who investigate a deadly organism of extraterrestrial origin. And the story is told in flashbacks by Dr. Stone, who is testifying to a congressional committee after a government satellite crashes in New Mexico. And so they send, unsuccessfully, the military to recover the satellite. Uh, and the reason why they don't recover it successfully is they start believing that, an a that the satellite has brought back an alien organism. And this is where the situation is kind of turned over to this top scientific uh, team. And so that really sets the stage for the movie. And with just a few exceptions, the film follows the book pretty closely. So what I'll, I wanted to talk about with the Andromeda Strain is first, this film is very scientific, which in general I think works well in books, but it doesn't always play out well for a movie. What do, what do you guys think? I love scientific books. In fact, I own a bunch of them, and like Michael Crichton, so I liked it, but I, there's, I can see where a large portion of the audience won't like it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, game somewhat that you know it is really interesting to to kind of learn about that type of stuff because that's kind of what it's doing it's teaching you all these different scientific um, aspects of what they're doing but i think where this film kind of falls short a little bit is it kind of just it goes too much into it like it just keeps going over and over again so i think they could have cut it back a little bit but it did make it you know pretty interesting i thought 
and so this is what I think are, are kind of some problems that what you're talking about T-Man causes. So there's a scene where they're building up really good suspense studying the virus. And it's where the, the lady scientist and the, the head scientist, they're kind of down, you know, in the bunker and they're reviewing it under microscopic lenses and they're trying to figure out um, a, a lot about the virus and they they start uncovering things and the movie really starts building and there's some good suspense going and there's a little tension building as they uncover more and more and then they just abruptly cut back to um, there's a couple of patients a baby and like this 69 year old alcoholic and they cut back to them and it just kind of totally killed the suspense uh, that they were creating there and I thought the scene where the lady, it, where they're showing those petri dishes, and the lady's trying to decide where which petri dish the virus can survive the or grows the least in. Is that the scene you're talking about? Well, it it's where they're looking at the, I guess the virus under a microscope, and they're looking at the surface, and she's telling them we need to go. You know, we need to jump to look into the inside. He's telling them to follow oh, no. protocol. But then once they start to get to the inside, then they start to find out more about the virus uh, strain. And it, then they they find out, you know, it kind of turns turns green and they see that it's kind of pulsating and growing a little bit. Right. And they're kind of, they start to build the suspense. Yeah. Oh, this they is, is kind of cool. They and did. they just immediately, abruptly out of nowhere, cut away back to the patients, which geez, I really wasn't. Inter- very interested no. in that subplot no. of the movie, and I, I was like, "Why did they just do that?" They really had me kind of going and interested. Again, it's it it didn't stuff like that didn't kill my overall viewing experience. I, I still liked the movie, okay, but I think what you're talking about, T Man, just overly drawn out and it being very scientific. I think they missed a few uh, points in the movie where they could have made something a little bit more exciting and not worried so much with the, the patient subplot. I think you're exactly right. And the scene I was thinking about where they just really drew it out was when they first arrived at the station. I think they called it wildfire. And they just mm-hmm. like, remember they kept going through those different levels and they kind of kept like um, going through the different scenarios to uh, be able to go to that final level. And it just took them forever to keep going through those levels. They explained the level. Then they had to, you know, clean themselves through the different um, atmospherics of the level. And it took like 20 minutes. And I'm like, (laughs) how long is this going to take? And I think the issue is Robert Wise, Wes, you mentioned it, great director. I mean, his filmography is is great. But I think he, he just really liked long films. Like West Side Story, very long. Sound of Music, very long. And he just really liked long films, and he just probably needed a better editor to really cut his films a little bit. Him and Peter Jackson needed a uh, an editor. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I thought the scene that you were talking about, Wes, was where they were looking at that pe- those Petri dishes. There's a part in the movie, and it's a very serious movie. For me to bust out laughing is, is, is rare in this, this movie. But where that lady was looking at the Petri dishes, and she just freezes. And there's like this, it just goes on for like five minutes. She's just frozen. But then it was because of her epilepsy with that. Red oh, light. yeah, that's right. But like, well, <laughs> I was like what's going on? What's well, this like is telling me like this? they had a lot of scenes they could have cut because we're all naming different scenes. <laughs> that's true. That is that's true. very true. Uh, 
But on some of my talking points, I did want to take a little bit of time just to talk about Michael Crichton for a minute. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's, you know, he's mainly known as being a writer, but he was a producer and he was a director. And he's probably most famous for writing the novel Jurassic Park. And this guy, he was, he's a very smart man. He attended Harvard Medical School. He also um, uh, studied English at Harvard. He, but he always knew he wanted to be a writer. And so Michael Crichton, he wrote Twister. He wrote Congo which is another book that's better than the movie. He wrote The Lost World. He wrote The Great Train Robbery. And then he was a writer and producer on the hit TV show ER. Oh, wow, yeah. And wow. so, but... Wes, didn't he also direct films too? Yes, he did. Yeah, like I was saying, he was he was a producer and a director, but he's mainly known as being a writer. Yeah. We can thank the Andromeda strain for all that. Uh, and the reason we can is because this was his first novel. He wrote it in 1969. It was published under his name. The novel wound up being a bestseller, and it really established him as a writer and, and you know, gave him an audience and gave him, you know, some yeah. power in the industry. And I took this from this excerpt from Wikipedia, but it said that, that Crichton was inspired to write it after reading IP Crestfile by Lynn Dayton. And it says that while studying in England, Crichton said he was terrifically impressed by that book. And a lot of the Andromeda is traceable uh, to the book in terms of trying to create uh, imaginary world using recognizable techniques and real people. And so that's where a lot of that scientific stuff that probably, again, worked much better in the book as you're reading through it and understanding than right. it plays out on screen. Yeah, I think that's, that's really cool. Interesting. But it took him three years uh, to write the book, and the novel was, was literally like an instant hit, almost like an overnight success. Uh, he sold the film rights for $250,000, and I didn't know this either, but he makes a cameo in the movie. The movie. Yeah. yeah, it's where the scene where Dr. Hall is told to kind of break scrub. He's in the background there. And so this isn't a huge plot point, but I wanted to ask you guys this. In the middle of the movie, do you do you buy this odd man hypothesis that they talked about? And if you don't know what that is, it's, it's the theory that an unmarried male is the most dispassionate person within a group to make a critical decision in a crisis. And so basically what that's referencing is where it's it's who can set the self-destruction of the facility. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'd never heard of that before. I, maybe I just hadn't read it before, but I just thought it was interesting. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's true or not. I'd, I'd have to read more into it, I think. But I did think it was a pretty interesting theory that they brought up. Well, they think, talked about it entirely too long, but I do. Yeah, they did. They, talk, they <laughs> talked about it? that key, and un, so the I got key. a little bit and, lost and, in that sector. But um, and I gotta say real quick, gals, like, well, this is definitely gonna happen at the end of the film because they oh, really I, just I, talked about it. <laughs> I was, but um, I do. I, I actually think that that is the only person that could make that decision, and and it led you down that path. But I really do. Well, so I feel like in the 60s, you know, when the book was written in the early 70s, when the movie was made, that that was probably more of a thing. 
But here in 2020, where people seem to be more and more isolated, you know, in the flesh, I don't know if that's truly the case anymore. And really the reason I I brought this up is because, you know, Gabe, you're a married man, T-Man, you're single. And really what we're trying to do is get T-Man hooked up with one of the listeners who's really passionate about movies. (laughs) That's the whole reason we're doing this. That's the whole reason. That's the whole reason reason we're doing the podcast. So ladies, that's Tommy Wood on Facebook. (laughs) And then we'll continue talking about uh, the odd man theory, whether it's true or not. I, I really, th- I guess it could be true. Um, the only thing I think against it is, is like the person's family, like say you're married or something, they're not there, but I guess they're saying that they're, they'd be more, they would be less apt to kill themselves because they, that's, they have like, a family or right, something. Right. Correct. Correct. That's, and when they were explaining it all, which it took quite a yeah, while, that's, I was sitting there brutal. running through it. I was like, Oh, I don't think, um, no way a woman. That had a child would do it. Zero chance because you know. I'm, I Here's know the thing, would... though. Like I'm pretty self-centered. I don't want to. I don't want to kill myself. Well, so, see, that, I don't, I don't that's think kind of what I like of personality. That's what I don't I think saying. True. I think in, in in prior decades, I think you know people had different thoughts and 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 the way that they approach stuff. But I'm I'm today. It's, I mean. It's more, much more about the individual. I mean, everything, all the the marketing and media, it's all about being yourself, and it's the me society. So, I just, I, I was making a joke about the hooking team and up with a listener. I actually did think it was an interesting uh, theory and worth talking about. But again, not a huge uh, part to the movie. But I just wanted to bring that up. Um, I honestly think, and this is this is food for thought. I think. Older siblings are more apt to do it than younger than younger siblings, because they know what it is to sacrifice for the younger uh, sibling. I think that's a that's an interesting point, Gabe. Me too. Hey, listeners, hit us back. What do you all think? See if see if see if you all agree with us. Yeah, that would be that'd be good to kind of get our the, the listeners' take on it as well. But um, just a, a few more points here. Uh, while watching the film, I couldn't help but feel that. St- that the movie looked like 2001, a space odyssey, you know, several set pieces and some of the special effects, which honestly the, in the, in a drama strain, they, they held up pretty well. But, um, the reason why I, I guess I, I thought that is because one of the guys actually worked on 2001 special effects. He was, he was actually the main guy from Andromeda strain. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. Trumbell, right. That's the iconic special effects guru in Hollywood. I mean, his name is just synonymous with that type of special effect. They talked about the levels for a long time, but I like the levels. I like the, I thought that was, I thought those levels. Too many levels. Like, do two levels. You don't need two five levels. levels. They needed that fifth level. They needed all the different No, levels. they don't, uh, it was way too many levels. And if you're going to have all those levels, don't go through each level. You could film. spice up the, the bedrooms a little bit. I mean. Well, they remember they had all like the, picture. they had all the levels in Outbreak. And you get all the way down to the duct tape level. Yeah, I want that. I was wondering, where's that duct tape level at? That's my type of level. I'll tell you what I really liked is how they got in those suits. Like, you know, they, I was gonna say, I have something about those suits, Gabe. Yeah, what were you gonna say about them? I like. I just. I was like, oh, they're gonna go through a tunnel. Where's this tunnel gonna lead? Bam, a suit. I was like, the thing. how did they ever get out of those suits? They couldn't have got out of them. Like it didn't work. 
Like there's no way to get out of them. You just kind of fall backwards. You like get no, your arms out. And then, there's no way. If you noticed, it never showed them getting out of those suits. No, 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 no. Look, it was a retractable tunnel. You just back up to the wall. I don't know if you could get out of them. Yeah, you could. Kids, how was, who is that flexible to totally bend there? Like, no, it's not possible. And here's the thing. You know it's not possible because they never showed it. And I was watching by the end of the film. I was like, are they ever going to show them trying to get out of those suits? Nope. They would cut each time. <laughs> they would go back to the wall, cut. Never, and then it would cut them going into the other wall, like out of the little tube. So I was like, "Yeah, you know the know. the set designer was getting really aggravated every time that they get done with a scene or there was a mess up, and they had to cut those people out of the suit <laughs> and then reset it up. Was like, ah, how many times we got to cut this damn suit? Let me ask you guys something. Why was that lady in the movie so angry? That lady scientist. Oh, they made her too angry, though. I agree. I was like, wow, she is really angry. She's angry about everything. Well, She's angry she about her last kinda, cigarette. She was just kind of done with, um, Bow, you know, maybe. being on this 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 special science team. And then she was pretty much against her will forced to come and, and work on this, you know, special government project. Yeah. Maybe but anyway, that, maybe it was the fact that she hadn't had a cigarette for the whole time she was down there. Who knows? Yeah, that, that could have been it. But in 2003, there was an article written by the Infectious Disease Society of America. And again, since we've been talking about infectious disease, I thought this article fit in well. And it said this about the movie. Most significant, scientifically accurate of all the films of this killer virus genre, it accurately details the appearance of a deadly agent its impact, and the efforts at containing it. And finally, the work up on its identification and uh, clarification on why certain persons are immune to it. So again, I think we can th- obviously thank Michael Crichton for that. Um, his Just because he is extremely smart man, he was an excellent writer, and I think he kind of set all that up. Yeah, he was always about those scientific aspects to the story. And, you know, even going into Jurassic Park, that's a really interesting way he, you know, they had the scientific element to it. Whether it's real or not, it it seems real. And I think with this, um, most of it does seem real. Even if you, we aren't scientists, we're not 100% sure if all of it's going to work. It just seems so realistic, which I think does add to the film, which is Yes, it's like, it's so believable. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. Can I say of the viruses that we've talked about in this podcast, which have been nine now, it's the most frightening of them to me because they went into such detail about how it could mutate, how it could be unstoppable, how it, you know, how it, it it was the scariest of all of them, I think. It was pretty scary how they did that. I agree. It was just growing that scene that Wes was talking about where it was just growing and mutating and growing and mutating and they could do nothing to control it. It, yeah, it freaked me out. all that stuff was really good. I think they just needed to cut like 20 minutes out of the film and it would have been really good. Yeah, but it was yep. still overall. It was I it was a solid it. film. So, Gabe, um, you were just talking about scenes. What was your favorite scene from the movie? The scene that I had just talked about when they were taught when they couldn't contain the virus. And what I liked about it is there was something different about this virus than all the other virus movies that we talked about is it was from space. So that added an element to it where it was like it had to learn. And they talk about it in the scene that I'm talking about, that it had to learn to survive in a a horrible conditions, basically in a vacuum with no, you know, so they're talking about the virus and they're watching it as it changes colors and it's growing uncontrollably. That whole sequence was just 
frightening to me. T-Man? Yeah, really cool sequence. I would say my favorite sequence was towards the beginning when they come upon the town. Yeah. And everybody's dead. And it's just shot really well, and it's really eerie. And they do those split screens, which I thought was really well done. And I thought that was just a really cool sequence that kind of got you ready for the film and got you kind of anticipating and you're full of tension. It's like, where is this going? This is going to be pretty scary, whatever they're dealing with. And you brought up the, the split scenes, and I was going to say just a little bit uh, about that. I don't— Alfred Hitchcocky to me. We'll, we'll see— cool. Yeah, I mean, possibly on, on Hitchcock, but, and I don't know this to be true, but I feel like Brian De Palma had to be influenced by this. 100%. I mean, gotta his, be. Yeah. His, his first movie was 73, and I believe it was Sisters was the name of it. And he, re- he didn't use it in that. And so I can't remember the first movie that he started using that in. Now, I will say that De Palma. Well, Carrie, right? Yeah, probably Carrie. That may have been the first yeah. movie that he did it in. But he is probably the master of that. But again, when I was I was seeing that, I was like, this is really well done. I, is this one of the first movies that they did this in? And, and it checks out that it is one of the first movies that really... Um, and I thought that was that. pretty cool that Robert Wise, who was this, you know, establishment, very famous director... Still had a few, you know, cars left to play and pulled out that split screen technique. I yep. thought that was pretty cool. So my favorite scene of the movie, I don't want to say too much about it, and I've said that a lot tonight, but again, this kind of happens towards the climax of, of the film. It was a little campy, but it was also exciting, and after all the scientific stuff, it was kind of welcome, but I really like the laser scene, and that's all I'll say about it. <laughs> Those I, lasers, yeah. Yeah, oh. I thought that was kind of neat. Um but team, and I'm with you as well. I really, really like the scene um, where the plane is flying over the town at the beginning, and everybody's dead, laying several feet apart. Yeah. Um, that kind of that set the tone for the movie. That was really cool. So my final thoughts on the movie is um, it's it's well directed. We've talked a little bit about that. We talked a little bit about the split screen uh, that the director used. And one thing I found really funny is that. I cracked up because Prime is, is how I watched the movie. I just rented it on Prime. It showed that the movie was rated G when it came on, but not 10 minutes into the movie, there's there's bare breasts just filling yeah. up the screen. I noticed that too. I was like, wow, this is a really uh, interesting G-rated film. And then not too long after that, you, you got all the dead you got all the dead people laying there, and there's <laughs> there's like that woman hanging in the staircase. And I'm like, man, this is a lot different than G movies when I was growing up. Right? Yeah. I was like, wow, let's get back to these type of G-rated films. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one other thing uh, in my final thoughts, the alien virus, uh, attacks, it attacks the host's lungs. That you see that uh, in all the scientific uh, analysis of the virus. And that's like coronavirus, which I thought, well, that's that felt a little too familiar. Mm-hmm. And so overall, I'm going to give the Andromeda Strain a 6 out of 10. And you might think, well, that's that's a little bit low for uh, a movie. And it actually comes in a little bit lower than, than the IMDb ratings, you know, other uh, what other people think about the film. But again, there's just too many times that the movie drug a little bit when I felt like it didn't have to. And I thought the humor fell completely flat. And they kept doing this kind of deadpan humor. And then as soon as it was 
they would say like what was supposed to be the funny stuff, then they would move on to something else. And it just, it just didn't work for me at all. Uh, I thought it was super cheesy. Um, but the movie's well-directed. It is interesting. Uh, I, I did stay mostly engaged throughout the movie, but uh, I think for me, six out of 10 is, is fair. Uh, Gabe, what about you? What do you, what are you writing in drama strain? Well, first of all, a G rating. I didn't even know that they'd done that. You know, when I was when I when I was a kid, I had to go to National Geographic for like indigenous people boobs. I didn't know that they could just throw those in there and get and still have a G rating. <laughs> oh goodness! Wow. <laughs> I just anywho. Um, I I think it helps that I watched the film with a true fan of the film that watched it when it came out. Uh, my father-in-law. Um, and he really loved the film, and he was a professor too at a college, so he's pretty sciencey. So that shows to why he liked it. Um, so I think it made me like it a little bit more watching somebody that excited to see me watch a movie that he cared about so much. And I think we experience that a lot of times when we watch film. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Definitely. But and I and there's been movies that uh, you guys have both recommended to me that I was excited to see because you guys cared about them so much. And maybe that influenced me, but I really liked it. I, as as much as I joked about it dur- during that, getting in and out of the suit and that lady sequence, um, it may, it's not my, I initially said it might be my favorite, but it's it's in my top three. I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10. I really oh, wow. Gabe's coming in. All right. Um, and, yeah, coming in strong. So I, I would. It might be that or might be that I just love Michael Crichton. Maybe I like science. Michael Crichton is awesome. He, I mean, he's great. I mean, iconic when it comes to science fiction, the, that type of genre. And so I would kind of split between you all two. I, I, I really liked it. Very enjoyable. It's just too long. I thought it just needed to cut it back by 15, 20 minutes, but overall very well directed. Like you said, Wes, I enjoyed all the science aspect of it. I really liked the sets and kind of the 2001 vibe I got from the special effects. It was just really cool. All practical effects. I like those type of practical effects. I thought that really brought an element of something just interesting that you don't see in today's films anymore. And then just the actual virus itself was a really cool concept too. And so I would go a, a, a straight seven out of 10 for Andromeda Strain. Well, before we wrap up the show, does, do you guys have any other sci-fi virus films that, that they would recommend? I didn't know there were other. I, I can't think of any more, Wes. Do you have any others that you would recommend? I had I had one more that I wanted to share with the audience. And again, we're not going to re- review this film, but uh, it's Shivers by David Cronenberg. It was his very first movie uh, yeah. released in 1975. It's, of course, one of you know his body horror films, and it was originally titled Orgy of the Blood Parasites. And basically, IMDb says the residents of a suburban high-rise apartment building are being infected by a strain of parasites that turn them into mindless, sex-crazed fiends out to infect others by the slightest sexual contact. Right. And all I'm going to say, good. yeah, I, 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 I want to say one plot. thing real quick. I would have liked to have been in the meeting when they decided which <laughs> of the two titles to use. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they should have gone with the other one. <laughs> Yeah, Orgy of the Blood Parasites is is a much fancier title than Shivers. 
I would have been on the side fighting for Orgy of the Blood Parasite. Right. Hey, that, back in the 70s, that was probably rated, P, uh, rated G also. Yeah, it was a rated, rated G movie. They were pretty lax with their ratings back then. But, no, I'm, I'll recommend everybody go check out Shivers. I think the movie fits extremely well in this genre, and I, I've actually rated a 7 out of 10. So if you get an opportunity to see Cronenberg's first movie, I recommend it. Well, guys, that's it. That wraps up our not only episode three, but it wraps up our infectious disease trilogy. Uh, I have seen a couple of articles that talk about like the best infectious disease movies you can watch. And what's amazing is that most all the lists that I've seen, we have reviewed over these three episodes, pretty much all of the top ones. And so a lot of fun uh, I had during this trilogy. I hope the audience liked it. Um, you guys have glad any... we did. Yeah, I'm glad we yeah. did this, but now I'm afraid to go anywhere. So, um, yes, <laughs> that's I live point. here in my basement. We're supposed to be quarantining. We're just trying to do our part and and keep uh, keeping people quarantined and provide them entertainment and recommendations while they're doing such. And I would say, yeah, to that point, yeah, I've had a lot of fun with these films too. Some I've seen before, some I hadn't. So I think it was a really fun uh, subgenre to explore. And I hope people have been able to check out some of these films for sure. Well, we're, of course, trying to grow our podcast and make it a success. We encourage you to subscribe to our show, which can now be found on most all major podcast directories. If you like what you hear, it'd be super cool if you'd leave us a five-star rating and review. And again, we've said it almost every episode. We'd love to catch up with you, the listener, and talk about movies. And so where you can find us is Real Talk Movie Cast. That's at real underscore cast. And then Gabe is actually now in charge of our Facebook page, and it's Real Talk Movie Podcast page. So you can search and find that. And uh, if you want to join that, just request an invitation, and we will add you to the group. So anyway, that's all we've got for tonight. And again, Episode 4 will be coming at you within the next week or so. And we're going to tackle 90s blockbusters. Thanks. See you then. See you then.